Some people wonder why I had the lack of categorization when it came to actually deciding my top 10. In fact, uh, it was kind of a thing that very recently, by my perspective, by your perspective, it's probably a month or two at this point, uh, that I actually sat down and figured out what the top 28 uh, games of all time was for me. Because as I talked about all the way back in my Dragon Age Origins video, which was years ago at this point, I've been playing video games for a long time. So I have a lot of games that I consider to be really, really good. And after a while, it goes so grows so wide that, you know, the, the top and then the top of the top and the top of the top of the top, it becomes a more and more difficult thing to ascertain, and that category goes larger and larger. It's not quite the same with movies, because I haven't watched nearly as many movies as I have, you know, play video games, but it's still the same general category. I mention this because Star Trek VI, and admittedly too as well, but Star Trek VI is up there very much up there and it's funny because if you asked me you know about a week ago before i started doing these why it is i prefer star trek 6 over 2 i'd say it's because of the personal significance to me even though star trek 6 is a more flawed movie in some ways to 2 uh, the wall coming down in space is a story that actually speaks to me more than the you know the wrath of khan various themes of life death etc aging and fixation that exists in star trek 2 Having rewatched that, I'm not sure that's true. Star Trek VI feels like... I don't mean this in a bad way, but the end of Star Trek. Now, now let me explain what I mean by that, because that's, that's probably... I don't mean like, oh god, it's the end of Star Trek. No, Nemesis was actually the end of Star Trek. What I mean by that is the finale, the finish, the, the last chapter, the last storyline. An excellent and amazingly well done ending. To Star Trek, I've said before that an ending cannot make a game or a movie or a book, right? Or a show. However, it can break it. If you have a bad ending, it will have a much more negative impact. And I've talked about this extensively. Um, I mean, for God's sakes, Mass Effect 3, right? But this is true regardless of that. Neverwinter Nights 2 is actually probably a better example of an otherwise amazing game that has a terrible ending. Which, Mask of the Betrayer fixed, fair enough, but still... And that ending taints so much of that good, right? But Star Trek VI feels like the good ending, the amazing ending we deserved. And a good ending will not, like I said, make a work, but it will add to it. That's, I think, the thing that really pushes Star Trek VI forward uh, before two in my mind now, having rewatched it with analysis mode. Star Trek VI is the ending of the old Star Trek. The original series, and then 1, 2, 3, 4, and 6, because screw 5. That whole story arc is concluded with this movie. Now, it is also worth noting that Star Trek VI also concentrates a lot on the darker aspects of Star Trek. People make fun of me because my because you know I'm I'm not what you would call consistent or robotic with my tastes. You know, just because I like A does not mean I like everything that has A in it, right? Which, when you say it like that, is a lot more understandable and reasonable. And I have to explain it like that to people sometimes because they don't think about it like that. For example, half the time I'm told, you know, well, you like a type of game. Why don't you like this other game? Well, because I don't like that game. I mention this, though, because I tend to like stories that really examine the darker aspects of nature, science, storytelling, humanity, etc. Uh, Deep Space Nine probably being an excellent example of that. But Star Trek VI, in many ways, is considered the prototype of Deep Space Nine. Bear with me, because Nicholas Meyer, who, again, oh, by the way, I'm sorry, one of the key note uh, to think about Star Trek VI, Nicholas Meyer did the screenplay again. Not the script, but he also didn't do the script of Star Trek II. He did the screenplay, and that screenplay was amazing. Like I said, untouchable. 
Star Trek VI, he did the screenplay again, and it shows. His writing style is all over the place. His directing style is all over the place. I'll be talking about that as we go through it. But my point in bringing this up is that Nicholas Meyer was not a Star Trek fan, even at this point in time. He still wasn't. So he had no fear of doing something that other people were, at this point in time, afraid to do, to really ask, focus on Star Trek and, and the Federation, and again, the darker aspects of humanity, the darker aspects of the Klingon. Keep in mind that when Star Trek VI came out, we were in Season 4, I want to say, of TNG. We were well into TNG. You know, that series was going and had finally found its footing and actually started being you know, popular and, and, and uh, well-received, and it actually started breaking into popular culture as well. So it's not like Star Trek was having issues at this point in time. And the 25th anniversary was coming around, which was really bringing more interest in Star Trek again. It is debated that if not for, the, for both of these facts, TNG doing so well and the 25th anniversary, Star Trek VI would have never been made, or at least it would have been the crap movie that was going to be made. I'll talk about that in a minute. But my point I'm trying to make here is that Nicholas Meyer looked at this wonderful, brand new, idealistic federation and said, what's it like underneath? And this is how it, in many ways, inspired Deep Space Nine, because it was that same mentality. Even though most of the writers on DS9 were actually huge fans of the original series, they still had that willingness to challenge, for lack of a better term, doctrine. The Roddenberry ideal, the box, the Roddenberry box, was something they didn't consider valid to restrain them. And it was the same thing with Meyer. It is actually a damned shame. I'm going to go ahead and segue into a note I have further down in my notes here. Roddenberry died very, very, very shortly after filming, watching this movie for the first time. He, uh, we don't know exact details because of the nature of what happened and the fact that he died, but Roddenberry was very upset at this film, uh, and that's very clear from a lot of people. Major Barrett himself, uh, has gone on record as saying, you know, this did not like this film, way too militaristic, way too dark, way too horrible, no, no, no. And he was actually uh, apparently petitioning his lawyer to get a huge chunk of this movie flat removed from the film. It makes me wonder, actually, what kind of movie we would have gotten if he had succeeded at that. But... <laughs> Let's talk about why Star Trek VI almost never happened. Now, Star Trek V bombed. It financially performed terribly. The opening night of Star Trek V was great because it was a new Star Trek film, so of course it was. And then ticket sales plummeted, and it had a terrible, terrible release. It, cr it financially bombed, and it critically bombed. And of course it did. I mean, Star Trek V was a bad movie, right? You can only enjoy a movie like that in retrospect and, again, you know, under certain circumstances or perspectives. So even if you're one of those people who genuinely like Star Trek V, and I mean no offense to you, you are in the minority in this case. Now, I'm not saying that as a negative. I'm saying that as a realistic perspective. From a financial perspective from the studio, the minority does not make films, which sucks, actually, because if they did, we'd get a lot more you know, niche film films out there. That, that's kind of gotten better in the, in the recent years, at least, but I digress. Point being... Star Trek VI was given a shoestring budget initially, and I mean minuscule. So small that it was one of the worst budgets it had had in, in a Star Trek film it had, especially when it counted for uh, inflation, basically ever. Now, Harv Bennett, uh, Harv Bennett looked at that and said, you know what, I got it. I'll do it. I'll make a Star Trek film. Because he wanted the 25th anniversary film, so he felt the best way to do, do that within the confines of those limitations was go back to the source. Making a film about the Academy days of when Kirk and Spock and all those people first met and first started interacting with each other. 
in many ways, again, this would also be a prototype, uh, at least idea-wise, for the 2009 Abrams film. You know, 2009, Star Trek 2009. But, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll talk about that much later. The point is, Bennett wanted to do this story with brand new actors, which would be much cheaper, and basically very, very limited cameo appearances, which would, which would cost far less, from Shatner, Nimoy, and Kelly, and that's it. Now, I mean no offense to Harve Bennett, but I don't think that movie would have been that good, to be blunt. An entire movie about the Academy days like that? No, 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 no. The only reason 2009's Abram film succeeded so well is because... Spoiler alert. Or rather, I shouldn't say spoiler alert. Excuse me, that's the wrong thing. I'm going to say something that's controversial, and people are going to disagree with me on that. That's fine. Abrams is a good director. He has genuine talent and skill as a director and managed to make a lot of things work in the 2009 film that frankly should not have. With a generally weak script and rather poor characterization, he nevertheless managed to put some energy onto the screen and do some good stuff with it. Keep in mind I like 2000 Star Trek. Star Trek. Don't, don't, don't try to bash me here. I enjoyed that film. But the point here is that it would take a really talented director to pull that off, and Nicholas Meyer was not going to be pulled on for this one because they couldn't afford him. By this point in time, Meyer was a successful director. For those of you who are remembering, back in Star Trek II, they tapped him because he was young but had showed potential. And they, they said, here, come do this for us. And he did show potential. He was an amazing director. He's still, in my opinion, among the best directors of all time. You know, in like the top 30 or whatever. Uh... They couldn't afford him, so they wouldn't get Meyer, so they wouldn't have a good director, good talent, you know. You get the problem. The head of Paramount, whose name I unfortunately could not find out. I actually did some digging in this, but I could not figure it out. But there's lots of references to the head of Paramount, but no references to who it is, which is strange. The head of Paramount at the time saw the film idea and said, no. This is the 25th anniversary, and I know, you know, I know the people working on this, and I want to get Meyer back out on this, and I want to get this thing... Here's the budget. And he personally approved the budget that Star Trek V got, which, by the way, was huge. Star Trek V, despite its financial issues, did have a gigantic budget. Approved that budget for Star Trek VI. And so Bennett's script idea was thrown out the window. This is why I say it's kind of unfortunate, because I actually have a lot of respect for Harv Bennett as, as, as a writer and as a, in, in, in general. And he's done some good stuff. He's an excellent works-in-groups kind of a writer. And we've seen this in Star Trek IV especially. So, Harv Bennett left. In fact, to my knowledge, Harv Bennett has never actually worked on Star Trek uh, ever again after this point in time. He, he flat quit over this change, which is a shame. But then Meyer came in and made Star Trek VI, one of my favorite movies of all time. You can see how I'm kind of torn on this, because it's unfortunate, but I got Star Trek VI out of this. Here's the anecdote that everyone knows. The Undiscovered Country was the original subtitle for Star Trek II. Uh, it was then changed by executive meddling twice, actually. It was originally going to be The Revenge of Khan, which was then changed because uh, the original title for Return of the Jedi was Revenge of the Jedi. And then they changed that, and then they changed it to The Wrath of Khan, and blah, blah, blah. The Undiscovered Country. I'll talk about that literally last. Don't worry, I've actually written it down this time. Uh, right here, right here. It's, oh my god, I have four pages of notes. Um... Let's talk about some controversial things about this film. The under This is funny. This is almost like a commentary on the times. Because this was the 90s, right? Now, for those of you not around in the 90s, or those of you who are very young in the 90s, the 90s were a very different era. It was basically the beginning of the Winds of Change era, is what I like to call it, in real life, here in the States, speaking specifically. It was the Winds of Change era. The Soviet Union was no more. The, the market had exploded, 
and uh, you know for the first time the internet was starting to become a big thing the tech the information age was basically just starting S television was going in a whole new direction that it had never gone before video games had become a big thing you know a lot of things started in the 90s it, they really started in the 80s but they they picked up steam in the 90s you know what i mean and so there was a lot of things happening in real life in the 90s, and this film in many ways embodies that. Uh, I'll talk about that more actually when we get to the TNG reviews, which, yes, I'm looking forward to. But my point here is that if you made Star Trek VI now brand new, it wouldn't be controversial. But in the 90s? This was a film in which several actors flat refused to say certain lines. Flat refused. Nichelle Nichols, in, in particular, actually literally said, I will not say that. You cannot pay me enough. I will walk. Now, I mention this because Meyer was adamant about maintaining certain aspects of his script. Again, the darker aspects of Star Trek. That's one of the things he wanted to explore, the dar darker aspects of humanity. It was Meyer's opinion, and I agree with this, that you cannot have the good without the bad. That these are people, flawed people. That was That's actually one of the biggest themes of all of Star Trek VI, which I will discuss throughout the work. We are flawed. The idea of Star Trek VI is that everyone is flawed to some extent or another, and it is how we deal with those flaws, and if and how we overcome those flaws that define us as people. That's, that's the strongest theme of this movie, and another reason why it's so dear to my heart. But, for example, there's a line that Nichelle Nichols had, which she was going to say, and I wrote it down here, Would you let your daughter marry one? That is a line that is a deliberate and intentional reference to something, I forget what, forgive me, which was being derogatory towards people of a different skin tone. Um, it's probably obvious why Nichelle Nichols refused to say that line. She also refused to say another line, which was, guess who's coming to dinner, which was also a reference of a similar site, which actually ended up going to Walter Koenig. Or Koenig. Kirk himself, Shatner, was really upset about how they were portraying Shatner as someone who had that kind of hatred in his heart. And actually, there are scenes, which we will never see, that were cut on the editing room floor. I shouldn't say scenes. There were subtleties in his performance that showed that he wasn't... And Shatner insisted on this, that he wasn't actually that hateful, that he wasn't that violently, you know, horrible, that were cut so that he appeared that he was. Um... The, woman, the gentleman who played uh, Admiral Cartwright, uh, and I forgot his name, it's the same guy who was in Star Trek IV, you know, Sisko's dad, not the same character, it's the same actor. He, uh, he had a line about, which, which he had trouble saying, they had to do several takes, because he has a line where he says, it's much better to bring the Klingon to their knees, which was a deliberate reference, again, to, to enslavement of, of people of different skin color. That was actually a deliberate reference to that. The whole point was not to look at racism or, or to, to be controversial, but rather to show that these are flawed people. And that's why I'm okay with it in this case. It's, it's always a case-by-case -case basis for me for controversial things. But I mention this again because it, nobody would have even probably cared if this movie was made now. There's another one that I'm going to share with you. Uh, Admiral, uh, excuse me, Colonel West, one of the only colonels in all of Star Trek, believe it or not. Colonel West was played by René Abagenois, which whose name I'm pronouncing wrong, which is the same because I actually have a lot of respect for the man. Did some good stuff in MASH and, of course, sold Odo in DS9. He, uh, he played Odo in DS9. He actually insisted that one of his scenes be cut, and it is from the theatrical cut. It, it's in the direct, if you see the director's edition, which has a few additional scenes, it's, it's there, where it's revealed that the assassin who was going to kill the president of the Federation, um was actually him. 
and he found it despicable and disgusting to think that a person would be willing to kill their own head of state in Starfleet under those you get the idea even though he he filmed it and and, and he's thought about it, he's like you know this is terrible and that's why it was cut from the theatrical release you see where I'm going with this I mention this especially because some people who have watched this film more modernly, including my sister who just watched it last year for the first time with me, didn't even notice the controversy. Didn't even recognize that there was one there. Didn't even see that it was anything worth discussing or detailing. So I'm only really mentioning it to bring it to your attention. And as always, I, I welcome your thoughts and, and, and interest on the matter. Uh, let's talk about Savic. <laughs> this will be coming in as well. Uh, and I will be mentioning a specific point much later. But and I have, actually have several points throughout here that just say Savic, Savic, Savic. Originally, it was going to be Savic and not Valeris. I think I mentioned this before, but I don't remember because it's been a long couple of days. The They were originally going to bring her back for this role. And if you w read the script, it was written for her. The script was written for Savic. The lines were only barely changed to make it seem like she was different. And I mean, like, there's three lines total. One about her record, uh, you know, top of her class, etc. One about one line that was omitted, which in which Shatner recognized Zavik, and one line later as Spock is discussing things with her after the, the big reveal. That's it. Those are the only three lines that are changed. Otherwise, it's completely written for Zavik, and it's obvious, and I'll discuss that as we go. But why did we not bring back Zavik? Well, Meyer was not uh, happy with Courtney, I think. Robin, God, I can't think of her name. The woman who played Savic in Star Trek Three, Nicholas Meyer was not happy with her performance. He rewatched Star Trek Three. Uh, he actually watched Star Trek Three and Star Trek Four in preparation for this. Uh, we don't know if he watched Five. <laughs> Funny fact. Um, but he rewatched Star Trek Three and he didn't like her performance at all. So he he wanted to get back uh, Christy Alley if he was going to have Savic, and he wanted to. And they reached. Uh, they 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 didn't actually reach out to Christy Alley. That never happened because uh, Leonard Nimoy was involved in this film as well and he talked about this and all the budget people talked, and they were like, we can't do it. Star Trek VI had a big budget, but they would have eaten a crap ton of that budget to get Christy Alley back because by this point in time, Christy Alley's star was rising, as the saying goes. She'd uh, gotten big on Frasier. She had her own thing. And so she was too expensive for them. And so it was flat impossible. I mean, they could have brought her back, but that would have eaten set massively into the rest of their budget for the rest of the film. And they really wanted to go all out with the effects on this one. So no, she was cut. So Meyer was stuck in a, in a hole because in his opinion, Savic's story had not yet completed. And he really, really wanted her for the role. And finally, he relented and decided to make a character who is in all, in everything but name and backstory, Savic. That's Valeris. A young Vulcan protege who was intelligent, top of their class, and was, and personally studied under Spock, and has his respect, and she, uh, she has his respect, and he has hers. And there's a huge undercurrent of, of warmth and, and, uh, that, that, a generational gap thing between the two of them. All that stuff is there. And that's why we got Valeris. Now, the funny fact, they brought back uh, the woman, what's her name? Kim Cattrall, there it is. Kim Cattrall was brought back for Savic and... Or for Savic, I just... For Valeris. I say brought back. For those of you not aware, Kim Cattrall was actually tapped to be Savic all the way back in Star Trek 2 and 3. That was one of the actresses who was in line to play the role. So when it came up to to, to portray fake Savic, you know, Valeris, they were like, you know what, here. 
a very good role in her my her, on a very good move on their part i think kim cattrall is not exactly one of my favorite actresses but she does an amazing job of this role and i feel actually portrays a, a vulcan pretty damned well all things considered it is worth noting that valeris is also half vulcan though so keep that in mind but i digress moving on um oh apparently it was three days roddenberry saw this movie three days before his death I'd just like to say something. I have a lot of negative things to say about Gene Roddenberry, and it's mostly because of the fact. I, I really have nothing against the man other than the fact that I disagree with him in many ways, and he is kind of a jackass. But I feel like mentioning it because I would never wish the man harm. At no point in time would I wish him to die. I am not happy that Gene Roddenberry died. Even though I got Star Trek Six out of it, I would rather have the man's life than a movie. I just feel like saying that. Several years ago, a joke was made uh, that Gene Roddenberry died and we got the best of Star Trek out of that. It was a joke in poor taste and I was rather upset about it, but it was it was a joke, right? The real joke that was said immediately after that was that someday George Lucas will die and we'll get Star Wars to be quality again as well. I find that ironic because in recent years, George Lucas has been removed from the equation. We'll see how that turns out this year, actually. Moving on. Cliff Eidelman. Do you know what that who that name is? The answer is probably no. Cliff Eidelman did the music for this film. I mention this because, in my opinion, Star Trek VI has the best score of all the Star Trek films. Uh, the only one that can contest it is Star Trek VIII. And he does amazing work. It's so military, so tense, so energetic. It is like one of the most perfect musical scores I've ever heard. And this guy is a total unknown. Look at his look at his record. Look at the fil the films that Cliff Eidelman has done music for, and you'll just be like, who? And half of those films you've probably never even seen. I probably have only seen them because you know I'm kind of a film geek and a very small film geek. But nevertheless, this man came out of nowhere to do this amazing score. And he deserves props for it. Now, he had a lot of inspiration. They actually wanted to get the music from uh, Planets, uh, and which is which had a big Greek, you know, kind of a feel to it. And they couldn't because of money. And so he was heavily inspired by that music. So it could be argued, although I feel like this is blowing it technically, that Eidelman was basically remixing the originally intended script for this movie. But remakes or no, he did an amazing job on it, and he deserves tremendous credit for that. And in my opinion, the music is is at least a huge contributor of why I love Star Trek VI so much. The music and the effects. ILM, of course, came back to do the effects. Finally, God, Star Trek V. Looking at Star Trek V and Star Trek VI, movies that didn't come out that far apart from each other, all things considered, the effects difference is colossal. And of course, Star Trek II had better effects than V, but whatever. Really, though, I feel this is one of the pinnacle movies when it comes amongst the Star Treks when it comes to visual effects, at least in my opinion. They were still using models, like, to the point of almost exclusion, and it shows, but in a good way. I've always been one of those people that, when it comes to ships and the like, I prefer models. It looks different to me. It looks more real. It looks more visual. I can tell that that's a physical object you're filming. You can do CGI to touch it up, and they did. They use CGI to do a lot of the lighting effects. They use CGI to, to add a lot of the destruction and damage and all that fun stuff in order to make some of the things flesh out. That's fine. They do a great job of it. But, of course, it's ILM. Of course they did a great job of it. One last thing to talk about, because I probably won't be getting the TNG series for quite a while. For those of you not aware of the historical context, over in TNG, a two-parter was coming out right before this movie. And I mean, like, a month before this movie came out. Unification. Part 1 and 2. Now, amongst my Trek geeks uh, out there in the audience, you know this. 
amount, amount and uh, some of you who haven't really, you know, weren't around at the time, but nevertheless watched Star Trek, are probably aware of the episode of Unification, which, if you remember, included Leonard Nimoy. You may or may not be aware of the fact that Unification actually references this film. Unification was specifically made as a um, a, a way to generate interest in the film, and succeeded, I might add. And Nimoy was specifically pulled from the filming, uh, of, or from, from filming from what he, what he was doing at the time, in order to work on Unification in addition to the Star Trek VI stuff. They did some good work with it. I mention it specifically, though, because the theme... The, I feel like the writers, and different writers for Unification Part 1 and 2, by the way, the writers of Unification did some good stuff with that story, given the fact that it was supposed to, in many ways, thematically tie in with Star Trek VI. Star Trek VI is the wall coming down in space, something that we already know happened at this point in time, again, historically, because TNG has been out for, like, several years now, remember? We know the Klingons and the Federation are at peace, but we never saw it happen. So Star Trek VI was the story of how that happened. The implication then in unification is unification is the story of the bonds starting to come, happen and the walls starting to, come, starting to come down between the Federation and Romulan. It's a shame we never actually got to see that story happen until Star Trek Online came out, which actually formally, finally had the Romulan Republic actually join and, and, and form an alliance with and, and have peace with the Federation. Good story arc, I might add. Let's talk about the movie itself. Praxis. Now, Praxis explodes, which screws everything up. Now, Praxis's destruction is absolutely mandatory for the construction of this uh, of this film because while this film looks at the darker aspects of the Federation, and a lot of people were bothered by it, this this film also looks at the dark, darker aspects of the Klingon Empire, and not as many people complained for some reason. One of the biggest things about that is the fact that the Klingon Empire was self-destructive. This is something that will actually be touched on very late in Deep Space Nine as well. Dax, uh, Esri Dax specifically, will actually talk about how she feels the Klingon Empire is stagnant to the point of self-destructive for the second time in its history, I feel like pointing out. But it's the same over-political infrastructure that causes that. In other words, it's the kind of thing you make a joke about when you talk about politicians. They're more concerned about their, you know, their politics or their affairs or, you know, we must keep this going and, and totally ignoring the reality of this situation. Praxis was a literal representation of that. Overmining, unsafe precautions, complete paranoiac militaristic expansionism, especially given the era. Remember, this is effectively still the Cold War. So they were so focused on being ahead of the Federation and, and doing what they could in order to stay stay ahead of the Federation that... They literally blew up their own moon in such a massive problem. I mean, that shockwave is colossal. The Excelsior was admittedly not that far off from Praxis, but couldn't have actually been in Klingon space at the time. I mean, of course it couldn't, right? It could have been near it, and indeed was near it, based on background information we have. But near is not in, and Praxis is a moon over Kronos, so... Imagine how far that explosion carried, a subspace explosion as it's described. Imagine how much damage that did. Now I know in the movie it's it's shown like this. In most works it's more like this because of course it would be a sphere. But the point, uh, there's actually some physics that could uh, support the idea that it would have been a, a this instead of a this. But moving along, the idea here is that Excelsior was way far off, still got the explosion hit them. You know, I'm, I'm just mentioning this to mention how bad this was. This is also critically important because some people don't understand the crisis the Klingon Empire is facing. A lot of talk has talked about how Kronos is unsustainable. 
two big important points here. Number one, Kronos is not just their home world. It's effectively the vast bulk of their population exists on Kronos and in Kronos and all of their infrastructure is there because they're an empire. And for those of you who don't really understand what that means, an empire means central organization all right here, and the branches take care of all the provinces and, and the districts and the, the, you know, the protectorates and all that fun stuff. But it's all focused here. If something happens here, this is screwed. And this is Kronos, which is screwed. You see where this goes here. It's also indicative because, not just because of the Cold War thing, but the idea that they would... I, I could just picture the Klingons who are so negligent that they would actively force their people and their miners and their uh, overlords and whatever to mine the crap out of Praxis because, damn it, we need to keep ahead of the Federation or I need to look good on my report leading to this disaster. Another interesting uh, th thought, though. I mentioned how badly Kronos is damaged. How badly do you think the rest of the Klingon Empire was damaged by an explosion that reached Excelsior light years away? It's never mentioned. But it doesn't have to be. That's one of the things I like about Star Trek VI script. Aside from a few points, they don't ha actually say things outright. They just let you think about them. So then there's Sulu, captain of the Excelsior. First of all, yes, absolutely. I think Sulu slid naturally and beautifully into the captain's chair. Uh, he, he should have been there. It was awesome. It was amazing to see him there. Um... While he may have deferred to his old captain, his role in the story was excellent. And it, I, I don't even know how to better say it. It just fit for Sulu to be captain. It's funny, considering the fact that, you know, behind the scenes, that was always the attention since, like, all the way back in Star Trek Three. But I digress. They also mentioned it's been three years. I mentioned back in Star Trek Four or Five video, I forgot how long it had been between Four and Six. Three years, at the minimum. Three years Sulu has been captain of the Excelsior. And the funny thing is, we see a tiny snippet of what Star Trek life really is like, at least in the Federation. Life is interesting and exciting and engaging, intellectually curious. You know, you get to go out and explore and study, and then something really, really horrifying happens and you have to deal with it. That basically is Star Trek in a nutshell, when you think about it. Three years, cataloging gases and anomalies. Keep that in the back of your mind, by the way, the whole thing there. So you see Meyer's style in his directing again. It's... Uh, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna list them all. There's a lot of extras. There's a lot of energy in a lot of scenes, and there's a lot of details into the set design, into what he, what's in the background in it, into the visual design, and for the space shots. You know, huge amount of details. Again, everything I mentioned back in Star Trek II with his directorial style is here on display again. Even for a set that's only seen for one or two scenes, has amazing amount of detail and work put into it. Very much Nicholas Meyer style. So peace. Peace is more difficult to do than most people seem to think of. From the armchair general perspective, it's easy to say, well, of course, stop killing each other for five seconds and be at peace. Keep in mind, Spock himself gives a number for it. Seventy years, I believe it was, of unremitted hostility. Now, you could argue that, uh, you know, the Organian Peace Treaty had something to do to dissuade that, but the fact of the matter is the Klingons have not been... The the idea is the 70-year mark is that's when the Klingon, the first Federation-Klingon war actually happened, the one that happened before the original series. And it's been 70 years since that, that action, 70 years of we're enemies. 70 years is a weird number, so I want those of you out there who are younger than 70, which I believe is all of you, to think about how many more years that is than how long you've been alive. I want you to picture being born in an era where that is the enemy. 
and that's what you that's normal it's not like some a part of your everyday life but it's normal you know that i actually have a perspective on this for those of you who are more in my age range for those of you who are alive during the cold war you understand what this was like the soviet union were the enemy it was normal it was natural it was actually more like the reds but you get the idea it was it was it was an everyday aspect of life and then all of a sudden by the way we're going to go to peace with them huh Imagine how bad it is for the people born in that generation. How, imagine how bad it is for the people who were born in that generation, a generation <laughs> extended, because 70 years is enough for three or more generations to, to exist in, two generations to have been born in. So people like Kirk, who were born in the youthful era of that and have lived their entire lives with them as the enemy, how do you deal with that? And all of the Admiralty Board is going to be like that too, because the Admirals are not young people. But they're also not old enough to have been around before the war because well, that's mostly impossible. So think about that for a moment. The uh, other thing I want to mention about this is, is there's two quotes that I really like him, and that's in this scene where, where Spock and Kirk are discussing. Spock says only Nixon could go to China. Some people don't understand that, so and I've been asked to comment on it, so I'm going to mention it briefly. The idea was only Nixon could go to China because only Nixon had established himself as an avid anti-communist individual here in the States in his career prior to that incident. Anyone else who had gone to China with diplomatic intentions would have been accused of being a red sympathizer. But Nixon had the backing and the history and the career showing he was very not communist. So he was actually capable of actually getting support here in the States to go and have diplomatic relations with China because he wasn't a sympathizer. Only Nixon could go to China. Only Kirk, someone who has been an, an avid anti-Klingon uh, person basically ever since uh, forever, but in, in, in uh, game terms, or in game terms, in, in movie terms, in setting terms, ever since, um, not Day of the Dove, the other one, uh, Let That Be Your Last Battlefield? No, that's not it. I can't think of the name. It's a great episode. It's the episode where he, uh, where, the, where we first see the Klingons, where they almost go into war. Kirk was avid, was literally arguing to go to war in that episode. Kirk has been an anti-Klingon person since forever, and they killed his son. Only someone with that credential, that backing, could be supported in the Federation as showing that this peace envoy, this olive branch, is legitimate. Because it's true on the other side, too. If anyone else other than Nixon had gone to China, China could look at that and say it was an insincere gesture. But it was Nixon himself. The, the avid anti-communist who was very powerful at the time and had a lot of political backing. So again, Kirk, both sides would have seen Kirk as someone who was making this peace treaty and this peace initiative real, that it was sincere, which is an irony, given certain things. The other th quote I like is, uh, well, it's not a quote, but it's an implication. There is a quote. Basically, Spock says, uh, "We must, we must take the initiative, and take uh, move forward with the Gorkhan initiative, or more conservative elements in his military will ch choose a military situation and die fighting." Now, the Klingon Empire, you know, the Klingon race would not genocide as a result of this. That's not how that works. But there is no denying that if the Klingons had decided for a military solution, given the massive amount of damage that Praxis did to them. Yeah, the, the Klingon Empire would have died. The Klingon race would have survived uh, in whatever form. A quote thrown out is the alien trash of the galaxy. You think we have immigration problems here? And we do. Immigration is a very real issue in real life, which I will not be discussing on my show. The idea of 
Klingons literally being a species without a homeworld and having all of the backstory and racial prejudice that exists against them. Yeah, the alien trash of the galaxy is a very accurate term, as horrible as it sounds. You think it's bad trying to get a job. You, they wouldn't even be able to function in certain areas. They would be hunted out of areas, killed in many cases, destroyed. You know, yeah. I mentioned both of these things, though, because even knowing this, Kirk is not stupid, but Kirk is ruled by his emotions. Even knowing what this would mean to the Klingon Empire, he lets slip a comment in a moment of anger. Let them die. Now, I believe firmly that Kirk didn't really mean that. One of the things I've talked about a lot in, in my analyses on fiction is a lot of people in real life who do the armchair thing, myself included, tend to forget the moment. In the moment, you're not thinking rationally. In the moment, you're not considering tomorrow. And I know most of you out there have probably understood what I mean by this. When you've done something stu stupid or rash or foolish, whether it's worked out or not, and it probably didn't. In the moment, you weren't thinking about it, right? Kirk, in the moment, is willing to let the entire Klingon way of life die. But when, Kling when Kirk actually thinks about it, He's not going to do that. And ignoring the fact that he is ordered to do this, Kirk actually goes out of his way on multiple occasions to push this thing forward, even though he disagrees with it. And by the time he realizes his own prejudices, realizes how darkened he has become towards Klingons, it shocks him. It shows him just how deep that wound has run, because it's not actually anger. This is the weird thing. Kirk does not hate Klingons. Kirk is hurt by Klingons. I know that sounds like a weird distinction, but anger is an emotion that so often covers other emotions and is used as a, as a mask. You aren't actually angry in many cases when you would be angry. You're using that anger in order to cover something else, like pain. And Kirk has lost quite a bit to the Klingons, including his, the loss of his son and his ship. Think about that. So I just want to mention that the pacing of this movie is amazing. <laughs> it, it does this beautifully. The highs and lows are everywhere. I'll talk about that later as well. Uh, Savik's quoting about... Savik, did I actually write that down? Valeris's... It says Savik right there. Valeris's quoting of regulations in Space Dock is another line that was clearly Savik's line. You know, you just go on quoting regulations. That was clearly a line that was designed for Savik so that Savik could then say, regulations state only do this. And, and in, the idea is that in Wrath of Khan, Kirk was inexperienced and arrogant and therefore was ignoring the advice of his lessers, you know, his lessers, because he was a fool. In Star Trek VI, the in implication is that he has learned and grown and become more of a, a seasoned veteran, and now can actually say with confidence, no, you can do this, despite the quoting of regulations. So a nice little arc there for him. Spock and Valeris's scene is wonderful. There's two meanings to it. Uh, both of them actually quite obvious when you think about it, but is another reason why this movie is a good movie to watch twice. Uh, by the way, spoiler alert in three, two, one. The first time we watch this, watch this scene, it's obviously about Spock and about he. How, and I'll talk about that more a little bit. Uh, how his character arc has basically uh, completed, and how he is ready to move on. He is ready to to engage in other affairs and and continue forward with his career, seek a new life, basically. And the second time we watch it, it's about Valeris. Because in the first thing, we see Spock trying to couch Valeris on all that he has learned. But in the second time, we see Valeris has come to him trying to discuss 
what she herself is is afraid of and, and concerned about, not 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 her own fears about what she, whether what she's doing is right or not, but rather want, wanting to discuss it with him because she believes it's right, because she believes that her treason is something that is actually logical. And and he she goes to him seeking logic and comfort and and consolation consolation, but the odd thing is Spock gives her nothing. All he gives her is blind faith. And in, in, in fact, I believe he says that literally. We must have faith that the universe will unveil as it will, you know. Which leads to one of the most famous Spock quotes of all time. Logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. This is truly the completion of Spock's character arc from all the way back in Star Trek One. Admittedly, it starts in the original series. But as I said, the movies have their own arcs for many of the characters. Spock starts off as someone who is trying to purge all of his emotion. He fails. He doesn't understand why. He seeks out V'ger. He understands that V'ger lacks what he has. And that's the beginning of his arc. By the time of Star Trek, you know, and then he dies. And then he comes back and starts to reacquaint himself with those things. Three years pass. Star Trek VI happens. And now for the first time, he is comfortable with himself. And that's interesting. Because that's really the difference. That's where Spock's character arc has come. He understands that he is not human. He understands that he is not Vulcan. He is Spock. And he is now comfortable enough with himself to admit that to himself, to ignore his own pride, and to accept that he, is, he, is, he, ex, he has logic, and he has the wisdom and guidance thereof to help him and the discipline. But there's nothing wrong with feeling. There's nothing wrong with things that are past logic. And as he says it himself, logic is the beginning of wisdom, not the end. That very quote says it all right there. Logic is a wonderful way to start. But there's so much more out there. So some people have asked why I like the Katinga. Um, I'm not even going to clarify what that is. <laughs> uh, for those of you who don't know, this movie is most of the reason why. The way the sh the ship is shot, the way that I just give it away. The way the ship is shot, the way they show it, the uh, Kronos von, the the Katinga class battlecruiser, it looks amazing. It, despite the uh, the often mocked of uh, sombrero thing in the front, I think the design of the ship is really awesome, especially uh, all the shots we see in this movie. So then David Warner shows up. Now David Warner is one of my favorite actors of all time. Uh, he sold. Baldur's Gate to me, Baldur's Gate 2, just to name one example right off the top of my head. Uh, he is pretty much the reason why um, uh, Chain of Command knocked it out of the park like it did over in TNG. David Warner is an amazing character actor. Now, you might, you might not understand what I mean by that. Character actor means someone who could really put forth a lot of subtlety into their performance of character-heavy pieces. That's what character actor usually means, at least by my definition. I know there are other definitions of that. David Warner does an amazing job because his role in this movie is actually quite small in terms of screen time, but his role in terms of thematic significance is gargantuan. We have Gorkon, who is the perfect puzzle piece for what the Klingon Empire needs at this point in time. He is the Chancellor of the High Council. Do you know what that means? No, I'll just tell you. It means he is intelligent, cunning, backed, and powerful enough to become Chancellor. You don't just become Chancellor. You have to have a lot of support and a lot of effort and work in order to get to that high station. Not any, not just everyone becomes High Chancellor, okay? Second thing, he is someone who is radical enough, idealistic enough, as his own daughter puts it, to consider ideas such as peace with the Federation. It is heavily implied throughout this movie that he was trying to push for peace with the Federation long before this happened. In actual fact, it is very likely that those peace talks, which were just mentioned all the way back in... Uh, 
Star Trek III were actually being initiated by Gorkum, since even if he wasn't Chancellor at that time, he would definitely have been in the upper echelons of, of Klingon politics at that point in time, because you don't just immediately go up to Chancellor, right? I mention this because the fact that he had been pushing for that kind of peace this long and maintained his position speaks volumes for the man's skill at political acumen, keeping in mind that in Klingon politics, murdering someone because they disagree with you is acceptable. That says a lot. And that brings me to my next point about Gorkhan. He looks dangerous. He, he has a powerful presence to him. He is the kind of person who literally feels like he is ready to defend himself at a moment's notice, willing to bludgeon you to death with that large tusk he carries around, if need be. And yet he is pleasant, diplomatic, considerate, understanding. He is someone who, he is probably the person who reaches out to Kirk the most, as weird as that sounds, because he understands immediately that Kirk does not want that this piece and does not trust him. But rather than hitting, hitting with vitriol or mockery or anything else he could have, he gives him he gives Kirk the weirdest thing of all, which helps Kirk go through his character arc later on. He gives Kirk understanding. I understand. And he doesn't do anything else. He doesn't push Kirk. He just says a wonderful quote, If there is to be a brave new world, our generation will have the hardest time living in it. So here's a tiny little question. Valeris suggests Romulan Ale. Does she do that to help? Or does she do that to try and sabotage the situation? Because, whew, speaking of which... Well, okay, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself here. So then we have something that a lot of people disagreed with. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give another controversial opinion here. In my opinion, the portrayal of the Klingons in Star Trek VI is among my favorite portrayals of Klingons. Go ahead and hate me. There are basically four, debatably, portrayals of Klingons across Star Trek. There's the ape-like barbarians who can't even think straight. Enterprise did that a lot. Some of TNG did that. Uh, that was actually Roddenberry's own perspective on it as well. Eh. Uh, there's the warrior race at the exclusion of all else, which is not as bad. Uh, that's portrayed mostly through the rest of TNG and DS9. And has its own subtleties and nuances to make it a real culture. Uh, there's actually some really awesome quotes about that. Like, for example, it's it's it may be the warriors who win the battles, but it is the engineers who build the empires. That's actually from Voyager, but still indicative of the mindset of the of how the Klingons were portrayed in this. It's also the most common portrayal of the Klingons. And then there's the uh, honorable warrior race, which really goes back to the original series and is peppered here or there throughout TNG, but is mostly represented by Worf. I'll talk about that much later. Finally, we have what I like to call the samurai representation, which again is peppered throughout, but is mostly represented right here in Star Trek VI. Honorable, you know, I, I know, I know, the real samurai were not actually that good people, but the ideal of the samurai, the honorable, venerable, dangerous, and deadly opponent who are precise, intelligent, and yet respectful. Nowhere is this more shown in Christopher Plummer. Now, for those of you who haven't seen him in anything else, Christopher Plummer does some really, really good character act action, acting as well. And he nails the part of the villain of this movie, of General Chang. He, is, again, he comes across as intelligent, as respectful, as you know, seasoned, as someone who is more than willing to be diplomatic and kind. And, and he's the kind of person who actually would kill you, but at no point would hate you. There is no malice in his action. He, in my opinion, strikes the perfect balance point of what a Klingon really should be. And, of course, there's one other thing that's very interesting about General Chang. 
he is very precise, very military, and that adds to his overall mystique and aura of deadliness. Throughout the movie, he gives really interesting orders, mostly not even vocal. Uh, my favorite is when he just claps his hands together to have the guards come to him. He doesn't say a word. He just claps his hands together for the for the guards to come and arrest Kirk and McCoy. When he's ordering the the torpedoes, he just does this little thing. Whenever he does uh, this, you know, it's he's very precise, very crisp, very uh, very efficient in his body movement. Very little uh, excess. It works beautifully to get across that overall mystique that he does. And again, great job, Meyer and. Uh, Christopher Plummer. So then there's the prejudice. <laughs> the prejudice is shown as an interesting aspect. You see the two again, uh, uh, two gentlemen, Burke and Samnell, I believe, who basically throw lines out as quickly as they can. It's really what it is. Uh, you know, do you see the way they smell? Only top of the line models can even talk. It is more difficult to avoid classism than you'd think. I, I use the term classism because, in my opinion, that is the most root thing that all other such things stem from. Elitism, prejudice, racism, all of that, in my opinion, stems all the way back to classism. In other words, there's you, and there's me, and there's a wall between us. And it's inevitable that people in Starfleet and the Klingon Empire would both look at the other side and think of that thing. In fact, not to put this bluntly, but in TNG... The Klingon Empire often has that exact same kind of mentality towards the Federation. In fact, that's actually present in Unification, if you'll remember that. The Klingon captain is very prejudiced against Picard. That doesn't work very well because it's freaking Picard, but I don't want to get into that right now. Probably the, mo the human who has understood Klingons the most across everything. But anyways, so... It's hard to avoid that kind of prejudice. And again, it's the kind of thing where the only way to avoid it is to have generations grow in this, you know, in the peace treaty. And yet, as I just kind of gave away, it's inevitable because the, you know, the TNG era, that's 70 years later, right? Or 80 years later. However many years it is between Star Trek 6 and and, you know, the first contact or encounter at Farpoint, excuse me. <laughs> first contact. Um it's a lot more years till first contact. There's even even though entire generations of people have been born in an era in which the Federation and the Klingon Empire are at peace, there's still those racial divides because, forgive me, classism is human nature. And in in a science fiction setting, classism is nature. It's, it's the way that people are. It's unavoidable. And it sucks. The other funny thing is that that in its own right is a degree of foreshadowing, but I'll get to that later. So then there's the dinner scene couple things about the dinner scene. First of all, blue squid. They actually had this really horrifyingly bad tasting and smelling squid that was dyed blue along with a few other things for the food. Um, whether this is true or not is debatable, but apparently Nicholas Meyer said he'd give them you know, money, literally cash out of pocket, if they would actually take bites out of it for the scene. And Shatner is apparently the only person who actually took him up on that and actually ended up throwing up over it. Yeah. Um... <laughs> Just thought I'd share that. But it added to the overall uncomfortable air of the scene, ironically, and made everyone much more agitated, which was good, because that's kind of what was, Meyer was going for. See, the original take and draft of the scene was that it was going to escalate much more. I mean, if you watch the movie, they don't even get to the point of shouting. They get to the point of discussing with an argumentative tone. Not even at the point of arguing yet. Then they would have gotten to shouting. And then it would have reached the point where they actually were basically ready to literally fight each other at the table. And that is when Gorkhan was going to interrupt and say, I see we have a long way to go. I like the new version better, and, and for the reasons that it was actually changed to this. It makes more sense that Gorkhan would interfere sooner, rather than allow things to get that bad. 
allowing escalation to happen is probably one of the worst enemies to peace you can ever have. So it makes sense. There's an, an interesting quote that Ezit Burr says. She says, the Federation is a homo sapiens only club. This is an interesting quote because this is partially an in-joke. For those of you not aware, um, up to up to this point in time, and this is true in TNG as well, Starfleet has been portrayed as like 90% human. And it's obvious why. Money. No, seriously, that's the real reason. Uh, because it's expensive to do prosthetics and makeup and all that fun stuff. So it's easier to just have humans in, in the various roles. It's interesting, though, because basically everything about everything indicates the fact that the Federation is like... While it has a lot of humans in it, it is in no way, especially Starfleet, is in no way a human-dominated society. There's tons of different aliens, all of whom have a significant influence and presence within the Federation and within Starfleet. We just don't see that because of budget. This is something the animated series actually went out of its way to try and correct, and the movies have tried to do as well by showing as many different alien races as possible. Remember, at the Kittimer scene, there's quite a few aliens there representing the Federation who are not human, because of course there are. In fact, it, just to point, drive this home, the president of, of Earth, the president of the Federation, is not human. Moving along. Um, but the, the other in, interesting thing about that, uh, from an in-character perspective, is that demonstrates that even someone as intelligent and well-positioned as Azit Burr, who is the daughter of the High Chancellor, and herself is someone of great political acumen and position within the High Council, I'll talk about that in a minute, is someone who believes that the Federation is a homo sapiens-only club. It makes me wonder if that prejudice exists because they have such a derision for humans, going all the way back to you know the original era when they first contacted uh, the Federation before it was a Federation, or if that is simply because of the fact that the humans have been driving most of the conflict within the Federation towards the Klingons. Just food for thought there. So, okay, there's a line about... Uh, we know where this is going, the annihilation of our culture, our way of life. I have since decided not to talk about this extensively because cultural assimilation is one of those, oh, excuse me, one of those nicety words that means something very murky. I don't even want to, like, start beginning to discuss this because I can't without getting into topics I myself have banned from my own channel. But suffice it to say, in my opinion... Historically speaking, there are two types of cultural assimilation. Benevolent and hostile. Both of them can be bad. Both of them can be good. It's all, in my opinion, down to the individual circumstances and situations and the individuals involved who make their choices. So I refuse to put any judgment on whatsoever on it because it always comes down to the individuals. That's my perspective on cultural assimilation. The idea that's being put forth here, though, is... And as we discuss this later, it's clear that this peace treaty will involve the Klingon Empire basically removing a lot of its budget from its military hardware and its military expansionism and focusing a lot, lot, lot more of that internally. It's interesting because prior to this point in time, we have not seen any Klingons that are not warriors. And yet from this point on, timeline-wise, a.k.a. in the TNG stuff we've already seen and will continue to see, we start to see more of that other side of thing. Again, the engineers build the empires. So it's actually debatable if the Klingon empires had a bit of a cultural restructuring to allow for more of non-militaristic, uh, well, I should say non-fighting, non-warrior perspective, and allow more of a, you know, okay, we need this, and we need this, and we need this, we need infrastructure, we need people, we need medicine, etc. That kind of a perspective. Debatable, worthy of thought. 
But I also mention this because the idea here is that the Klingon Empire would basically become absorbed into the Federation. And this is something that I feel is what really was the motivator for a lot of people, including General Chang himself. I'll talk again about that very dead last, but the annihilation of your entire way of living is not necessarily something that involves a bomb or a zombie apocalypse or a planetary destroying weapon or whatever. It can come from literally your way of living ceasing to exist and being supplanted with something else buy something else. How many Klingons would be willing to live the way that the Federation lives, in the same style that they do, with all of their... Now remember, the Klingon Empire, and we know this especially from TNG, places a huge emphasis on history, on legends, on myths, on, on traditions. It's a huge deal for them. In fact, as pointed out by Ezra Dax, as I mentioned earlier, it's actually something that cripples them by the end, because they are so focused on traditions, they are refusing to change. Now, I, you know, I, I tend to be a little more moderate. I think that change should happen within moderation. But you get the idea. Imagine how many Klingons would have felt terrified at the idea that the very Klingon way of life, as he himself puts it, the fact that you know, they have all these traditions, they have all these cultures, the, the, the legends of Kalos, for God's sakes, might have been lost if they were all absorbed into this new federation. And whether it's good or bad, who can even know? Is it worth dying to sustain who we are? A lot of people would think that, Klingon or no. Better to die on our feet than live on our knees. But I mention this because I have no doubt the Federation would never have hostilely, culturally assimilated the Klingon Empire. And indeed, we know they didn't do it in, in general. But I have also no doubt that it would have been very easy for them to benevolently, culturally assimilate the Klingon Empire. And given what happened in TNG, I think that's, a, that's related. But I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute. Um... Scroll, 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 scroll. <laughs> I do like how Kirk has a brain throughout this movie. I know that sounds weird, but Kirk is at all times presented as someone who is thinking about what's going, thinking on his feet, which is very much Kirk in my opinion. That was also true in Star Trek Two. I find that uh, to be an interesting coincidence. He realizes immediately that they have screwed up, that while he was doing this entire thing in order to make a, a further step towards furthering peace, he has probably done more to push away from peace uh, because of this dinner meeting. And he is upset about that, which is why he goes to lay down and sleep off his headache. Then Spock calls him up to the bridge, and there's a surge of neutron radiation. Note how quickly Kirk recovers from his headache and from his, wheeziness, or his, his drowsiness the moment he hears that. Neutron radiation can only mean one thing, weapon systems powering up. We know this even at this point in time. So the idea that weapon systems are powering up between these two ships is... And I just like the fact that Kirk is like that, right on his feet, almost immediately after that. Then comes one of the most energy, energetic scenes in this movie that doesn't involve a fight. The torpedo hits the, uh, the Kronos One. Kronos One had no shields. Neither ship had any shields up. Why would they? Shields are very draining, and you don't just leave them on all the time, right? Uh, that's why Yellow Alert exists. As we've established many times, torpedoes don't do that much when you have shields up. This is one of the reasons the Enterprise can withstand multiple torpedo blasts at the end of this movie, until their shields fall, at which point it starts to get really bad. Here, a Katinga battlecruiser, at this point in time, one of the strongest warships that exists in this setting, is disabled to the point of non-functioning non with only a couple of torpedoes because their shields were down. And of course, they were very precisely aimed, as well they should be. 
I mean, why wouldn't they be? They, they know exactly where to hit the ship. One thing I want to point out for anybody re-watching this film who watches it with me, keep in mind that Kirk and McCoy both are tired and fighting off a massive headache and hangover throughout the entirety of the following scene. Just keep that in the back of your mind. Um, so, I'd mentioned peace is hard earlier. Let me explain one of the big reasons why that is. Let's say you and I are enemies. Bear with me. You and I have been enemies for a long time. I have no reason to trust you. I want peace. You want peace. We don't know this. Now, occasionally what will happen is I will let go on an unslipped, unguarded comment that I want peace. And you'll think about that and think it's a trick. Because you have no reason to trust me. But you'll think about it. And that will grow from there to the point where maybe you're willing to talk to me because you also want peace. Now, I think you're tricking me. I think you're using my desire for peace against me. We have a tremendous amount of suspicion, hostility, and mistrust between us because we've been enemies for so long. This is the Cold War in a nutshell, by the way. We have no reason to be fighting, really. But we are so terrified of each other because at any point in time, you could be using my desire to get along with you against me. And you're thinking that too. Now we finally reach the point where we're willing to talk about it. Do you have any idea how easy it is for that to break apart? Because it's just the most... Imagine these, there's this cliff, okay? And you're on this side of the cliff, and I'm on this cliff. And we're trying to reach out to each other. We don't have a bridge. We don't have steel and mortar. We don't even have wood. We have toothpicks, which have been band-aided together. And that's how we're reaching out to each other. It is the most flimsiest, barest of constructions that takes almost nothing to, to break apart. And yet, it is possible if nothing external influenced it, it would still work. That is how peace is almost always formed, historically speaking. It takes a while, it's gradual, but eventually that connection is made, and from there it gets stronger. The reason I mention this is, historically as well as fictionally speaking, it is so easy to disrupt it from an external source. It is so easy. This is actually one of the big, big threads that happened between Wrath of the Lich King and Cataclysm over in World of Warcraft as well. Why did the Alliance and Horde go to war again? Because someone completely unrelated to either side did a horrible thing and blamed the other side for it twice which is exactly what they were going to do in this film. Kill the Chancellor, blame it on the blame it on Kirk. Kill the President, blame it on a Klingon. Revenge for the Chancellor. No one would question it. No one would think for even a moment that an outside power with interest in maintaining the war or the status quo would do such a thing. It is so easy and natural to assume that all of my suspicions that you were trying to plot against me were correct, because I already had those suspicions. So the moment a third person comes in here, and shows me photos of you plotting against me, or, you know, what? it's hard to keep this analogy going, but bear with me. The moment I receive evidence of you hurting me, the moment I, you know, I'm shoved from behind by another person, I turn around and you're the person there and he's over there, I assume it's you. Of course I do. I don't trust you. You see how this works? It's tragic, but very accurate, and, and it's really funny because, again, we came within inches of this in real life, Many times. There's a reason it took so, 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 so long for the Cold War to end. And there's a reason why it took so long for the Cold War in Star Trek to end. So, Klingon blood. This is kind of funny. The Klingon blood, Klingon blood has always been red. For those of you not aware, before this movie and after it. There's literally never another instance of Klingon blood not being red. They specifically made it pink for two plot points. One was for the plot point of, of, of the, the stuff on the teleporter pad, that's obvious. The other was for the plot point of figuring out who Colonel West was. If they had just killed, you know, they, they killed the Klingon, this is, you know, and, and Worf, 
uh, Worf's father, or grandfather, excuse me. Is it father or grandfather? I don't actually remember. Either way, the character Michael Dorn is playing. This is not Klingon blood. And that was that was actually deliberately set up for that plot point, so he would then discover it was Colonel West and that both sides... You know, that a Federation member was trying planning to assassinate his own Chancellor and blame it on the other side, which is funny because a Klingon leader assassinated the High Counselor and blamed... You, you get how this works here. The idea was to show that both sides were equally culpable. That obviously failed on its fell on its face because they got rid of that scene, and again, the pink blood thing is never seen before or since. I do uh, want to credit them the work on it. it. It looks dated. It does. It looks like a 90s effect, but ILNM did some good work on it, so shrug. Now, there's a long-standing theory that I actually agree with, uh, that I've postulated myself before, that the original plan was Chang's Bird of Prey would, would attack and disable uh, the Kronos One for a minute. Chang would rush to the bridge and barely get things under control and, and get the ship back to the thing and go and destroy the Enterprise. Chang... For Chang, that's exactly what he would have wanted, isn't it? One final glorious battle against the Enterprise. Even if he died in it, it wouldn't matter. Not really. That would have gotten Azit gotten Burr out of the picture. That would have gotten the High Chancellor out of the picture. The destruction of Kronos One and the destruction of the Enterprise would have almost assured his way of life would have continued. He would have won. And he would have died honorably. This is, again, that perspective of the Klingons. The idea to fight a good fight against a worthy opponent, that would have been awesome and worthy of going for that. And so... The Kronos One bears down on the Enterprise, but doesn't fire. Because Kirk says something that had so much impact that when I saw this movie in the theaters, the entire audience gasped when they heard it. We surrender. The urgency and swiftness with which he said that. We surrender. I'm not even kidding. Everyone was like, oh my god. And my mom, who was sitting next to me, was like... You know, Kirk doesn't surrender. That's not how that works. It really got across, across the gravity of the scene. But I feel also that is why that the events unfolded the way they were. And honestly, is probably a great example of Kirk thinking on his feet. He surrendered to a Klingon commander because he knew the Klingon commander could not bring himself to fire on a surrendered, unarmed, defenseless ship, which didn't even raise its shields. Remember Chekhov sitting there, like, freaking out because he's correct. If, the, if a Katinga fires on the Enterprise, with Enterprise's shields down, that fight is over. And so he's just like, but they didn't fire, because Kirk had correctly read his opponent. One of the things this movie does very well is, is, like I said, it shows Kirk's intelligence. It's never stated outright, but he's thinking under the surface all the time. And he recognized that Chang is, not, is as an honorable warrior, as a warrior who respects him, is not going to try and beat him down when he is surrendered. And then he struggles to salvage the situation. Gets over there, get, takes McCoy and says, we, we've got to try and fix this right now. Nice touch. Um, while the actual prop changes a few times, the Viridian patch that Spock puts on Kirk's shoulder is actually there in every scene between now and you know, when, when they rescue him. Just, just thought I'd point that out. Nice little continuity touch. Bones' desperation to save Gorkon is interesting because... On the first, on the first hand, it's obvious. You know, he's a doctor. He's always been portrayed as someone who thinks of death as a horrible thing. It's also interesting because Bones probably that whole time. I could just picture him cursing himself in his head. He doesn't know Klingon anatomy. Why would he? They're the enemy. Now, whether Bones himself had the prejudice or not is debatable. In my opinion, he did not. That's very not Bones. Of all the people in Star Trek to be prejudiced, Bones is not on that list. Okay. Maybe towards Vulcans, but even that is actually not true, as we've established many times. He's actually not prejudiced against Vulcans. He enjoys ribbing Spock because he is Spock's friend, and Spock has his respect. I mean, Pax and I do that to each other all the time. 
but he didn't know Klingon anatomy. How could he? They didn't know Klingon anatomy. It wasn't something they studied. It wasn't something he practiced. He doesn't operate on Klingons. He probably had never operated on Klingons ever prior to this point in time. And so imagine Bones, and he's shaking. Imagine how much he was cursing himself for not knowing how to save the life of a man he desperately wanted to save. In his own words, he was the last best hope for peace. Think about that. Gorkhan's last words are, Don't let it end this way, Captain. That is actually a line that's, believe it or not, been debated many times. My interpretation of it, and I as, as ever open the forum for you guys to disagree with me and to comment on this, is that Gorkhan realized in that moment that it wasn't Kirk. Whether he had any suspicions of it or not is debatable. But I believe that Gorkhan had no doubt Kirk did not instigate this. That despite all his things, Kirk was an honorable man. And again, going with this perspective of the Klingons, perceiving Kirk as an honorable man is a huge compliment coming from a Klingon, especially one with Gorkon stature. So no truly honorable warrior would do such a cutthroat, daggered attack like this. At no point in time would they do so. So he knew Kirk hadn't done it. And he knew that this entire process might end because someone interfered. He understood that concept I talked about, the third person, the external influence. Don't let it end this way, Captain. You have to make this right. We must have peace. So, interesting little thing. Pay attention to the way Valeris talks with Spock afterwards. She quietly goads him in many ways. Uh, both to attack, try to try and mount a rescue, and to try and get some information. And Spock... And again, this movie shows off Spock's intellect quite well, not just Kirk's. Spock, if you pay attention to the way he says his words very carefully early on, he is very guarded about what he mentions, about what he shares. The only person he actually shares anything with is, is Valeris. And most of the time, he doesn't share anything with her. He just looks at her, and she finishes a sentence for him. He is very tight-lipped about a lot of information because he knows, or at least even at this early stage, suspects that there are traitors on the Enterprise, and therefore he does not know who to trust, I'm not talking about the bridge crew, I'm talking about not letting... The best way to keep a secret is to never share it. Not with anybody. That's just the hard-locked, logical way to do it. So I like that presentation that that Spock did. Uh, so then there's Kurtward Smith, who, ironically, I just uh, uh, talked about that not too long ago in the Year of Hell duology. Uh, duology. The duo. Two-parter. Over in uh, Voyager. Kurtwood Smith does an excellent job of the Federation president. He was actually asked to do a very specific acting job, and I kind of like it because he does it very well. It, while he can do some good character moments, he was not asked to for the Federation. He was told, you're not a character. You are a presence. And Kurtwood Smith took that to heart and portrayed someone who was literally, in his own mind, in his own words, a visual embodiment of the Federation. And how he, he tried to present himself as someone who has the kind of presence and charisma that that, that kind of position would warrant. And he does this throughout all of his scenes, if you pay attention. Because there's not many, many character moments for him, other than his obvious frustration at the fact that he realizes Kirk has lost the trial. The rest of it is all just him being president of Earth, rather than a character. Nice little touch there. Where am I? Um, question. Valeris helps the crew multiple times. Why? Well, the answer is, ironically, quite logical. Valeris is not a traitor, in her own mind. In Valeris's way of thinking, what she is doing is logical and the correct thing to do for the course of the Federation. Ergo, she has no desire to actually hinder their operation and circumstances because she is still loyal to this crew and to the Federation in general. 
How's that for an irony? At least that's my interpretation of it. So Azitbur is named Chancellor. Now I mentioned this mentioned this earlier. Azitbur would have to be at least somewhat positioned in the High Council to be named Chancellor. To my knowledge, she's also the only female Chancellor ever. I only mention this because this is also significant for several reasons. The first is the most obvious. It allows the plot to continue. Azitbur would be the only one willing to actually continue with peace talks at this point in time. So, duh. And yet... It speaks to the mind of the woman who had that kind of commanding presence that she was able to turn down the entirety of her military board, all of whom, 100% of whom, were cautioning her and advising her to declare war on the Federation over this incident. And she, sh she turned them all down to a number. I'll talk about that in a little more in just a second. But I mention this because... Again, Klingon politics are very cutthroat, uh, literally and otherwise. You, can't, you have to constantly maintain a position of strength visually and otherwise, in order to, or metaphorically and otherwise, in order to maintain your power base within the Klingon Empire. So the idea that she was able to hold on to her power and actually become named Chancellor, that says a lot. But it's also, there's also one other thing I love about it. It's this beautiful subtlety. I don't know if it was done on purpose. It probably was, knowing Nicholas Meyer. The subtlety here is that there were enough other sympathetic members of the High Council who also wanted an end to the war, a peace treaty, a true peace treaty with the Federation. Keep in mind, an alliance is further down the road. This is just peace with the Federation, and therefore were willing to support her for High Chancellor, knowing she would support that. Unwilling to go out and risk their necks themselves in order to push the peace treaty, but wanting it enough in order to push her into position. I like it because it's a subtlety that speaks to something that I love about the Klingon Empire. They're not uniform. They are people. There are people there who want things and want things in different ways. They are gray. They're just like us. And I like that. I like that, that nuance that that adds to the situation. Um, another interesting thing. Uh, okay, so I mentioned earlier the, the whole thing. Chang... Chang goes out of... Okay, all the military advisors tell her, let's just go to war. But the funny thing is, pay attention to their arguments. None of them have substance to them. Whether that's because they're not thinking straight... I mean, these are Klingons who have just seen the death of their chancellor on their watch. Under some circumstances, a Klingon would literally commit suicide like that. I mean, think about that for a moment. Um, but so, you know, they're probably not thinking straight. But Chang is the one who gives the actual real attempt to convince Azitbur. The others are like, we must kill them all. Better to die on, on our feet. They're, they're basically giving their opinion on the circumstances, but Chang actually says the one thing to try and convince her that she's wrong. Your father was killed for what he wanted. And then she, she that's the only thing of all of them that actually makes her pause for a moment. And then she says, no, the peace process will go forward. But then Azitbur does something intelligent. They have a show trial for Kirk, right? They have this whole thing... And it's all there specifically to placate... Well, okay. It's there to satisfy the need for vengeance. Klingon culture is very much bound in the idea of vengeance. Revenge, specifically. Not justice. Let me make that clear. Not justice, not balancing of the scales, not recompense. Vengeance. You hurt me, I hurt you. You hurt my family, I hurt your family. Very cut and dry. That's always been a facet of Klingon culture. Someone needed to be hurt and punished for the d death of the Chancellor Gorkon. And if no one had been, it is my opinion that Azipur's position would have been usurped probably literally, probably with her death very quickly. She needed to basically sacrifice someone to satisfy the Klingon as a species need for vengeance. 
And so it was, and it was probably also for her own particular desires for vengeance too, whether she actually believed Kirk did or not. Debatable, we never know. But she, she needed some semblance of vengeance as well. She is a Klingon as well, after all. I mention this though because it's wonderful be that it, it, it's the entire idea of sacrificing Kirk to this. There was no intention of ever letting Kirk go free. And yet there's something that happens. The judge says, in, in the interest of Amnesty Peacocks, blah, 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 the sentence of death is commuted. I mentioned that. I mentioned that. Because it makes me wonder if that was something that Azitbur or someone in the High Council arranged. Because I cannot believe the judge did that on his own merit. I, I could be wrong about this. This is just my interpretation. But I believe that politics was at work here. And someone involved wanted to arrange the situation such that Kirk was allowed to live specifically to help, as the judge himself says, uh, uh, foment? What's the word he uses? Engender uh, uh, good feelings. God, I, I don't have my words right now. My vocabulary is just out the window. To engender the 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 beneficial feelings between the Federation and the Klingon in order to try and uh, help the peace talks go forward. So, nice little touch on the part of the director. Chang begins speaking Klingon, and then the, the camera cuts to the people who are doing the translation in the booth. And then from that point on, they don't speak Klingon. That is a wonderfully subtle touch, and it's not subtle, but it's a great directorial touch. It's a great way to do the whole scene without subtitles and without the, without the actors having to memorize a lot of Klingon, so that they can just speak English throughout the rest of the scene, but we, the audience, understand they're not speaking English. They're speaking Klingon. And uh, Kirk and McCoy, who never let these things leave their ears except for certain moments, are listening to the translation through that, and everyone watching on their view screens is listening to, listening to the translation through that. It's an understood thing. You don't need to show us the literal, you know, dual layer or whatever. It's a artistic touch rather than a literal touch. So then there's Michael Dorn, who is awesome. Um, he plays... Uh, Worf's father or grandfather, I forget, in, in defending them in the trial. It has been joked that Worf's greatest trait is losing. I disagree with that personally. Uh, I, but then again, I like Worf a lot as a character. But it is funny to note that even his ancestor lost this particular battle. That being said, it's a funny thing because uh, TNG was going on at this point in time, and they literally went by the set, and Dorne happened to be at the set, and they were like, hey, by the way, you're going to be in Star Trek VI. And that was kind of how he was informed. Nice little touch. And he was basically playing the same role for all intents and purposes. <laughs> so, interesting uh, another touch. And again, Spock and Kirk are both portrayed as intelligent. Both of them have a visual, visible reaction to Kirk's log being portrayed, uh, being played. Now, a lot of people have a reaction to that. You know, the president, as I mentioned earlier. But both of them realize immediately there's something wrong with that. The fact that there's the log means something's up. And both of them end up talking about this and, and using it to figure out what was going on towards the end. Just because if I don't mention it, someone will. Yes, there was some Adelaide Stevens in this. That's all I'm saying. Some people have asked me to define it technically, and I've, I've, there's two definitions of it, actually, as I've discussed over the years, but this is one of those two definitions in a nutshell. Kirk is found guilty of assassinating the High Chancellor because under legal law, he is responsible for the, crew, for the act of the crew under his men. So if any of his crew independently decided to assassinate the Chancellor, he is guilty of assassinating the Chancellor. That is definition one of a technically in a nutshell, and one of the reasons why I hate that term, hate that concept, and I've been lobbying to destroy it from humanity ever since. 
when the sentence is put down, you know, guilty as charged, one of the nice touches they do is they zoom in very well on Cartwright's face. Keep in mind, unlike the fact that it's the same actor but a different role in DS9, it is the same actor in the same role from Star Trek IV. That's important because this is a man who was one of the head admirals, you know, carrying the flag on Earth when Earth was in a literal planetary disaster and Kirk saved the planet. This is a man who is very loyal to Starfleet, very loyal to the Federation, and very much stringent in his beliefs that what he was doing was the right thing. But I like the tiny subtlety of his expression as he's watching Kirk get sentenced to death, as he believes. Because everyone believed Kirk would be sentenced to death. It's so... Maybe I'm just reading too much into it, but in my opinion, as you look his stony face, you see the regret and bittered, uh, embittered determination on his face there. This is a horrible thing that he has done, but he is willing to do it because, damn it, it's the right thing to do. Ironic, given what his son would do over in DS9. I know, different character, but moving along. Rurapente. Rurapente is very Klingon. Let me explain what I mean. Let's say you're guilty of something. Now, there are so many different justice systems that I'm not going to try and discuss them all here. And I've had, I have very controversial opinions on that, and I'm not going to even go into it. Suffice it to say that, in general, in the Federation, if you are found guilty of something, you are either sent to a penal colony or just, you know, locked away. The end, right? Klingons don't think that way. Klingons think, why would I waste that resource? This is fascinating in its own right, because effectively what the Klingons have done here is slavery. Now, it's penalized slavery. You know, you are slave as a punishment, but it is still slavery. You have been captured, taken away against your will, because you have done something against them. You have been found guilty, and now you will work for us. Now, from the Klingon perspective, that makes perfect sense. Because, again, why waste the resource? Why waste the resources holding them? Why waste the resource that they are in just killing them? Because they can kill them easily. But no, they want to use that resource. And, well, I mean, if you do something on Rupert, then you can die. It's their problem. I also mention it because I really like Rurapente in two big reasons. Number one, it's a perfect prison. You know, the magnetic field prevents beaming, and it's a cold, desolate wasteland. So, basically, no matter what, if you, you know, it's actually very easy to escape the mines and get onto the surface. And it's emphasized several times that it's very easy to do that. But at that point, you are effectively killing yourself unless you have a ship ready to go and the means to get outside the field, Right. This brings me to my second point, and the reason I like Rurapente. It's very carrot in the stick. There's actually a quote here, which I'm going to quote really quickly here. Work well, and you will be treated well. Work badly, and you will die. A lot of things be said about the carrot and stick approach, but there is no denying that it is a very effective approach. The Dominion actually uses this approach a great deal in their political affairs. So the idea of, of you know, you are a slave, but you'll be treated well, if you work well, you are a slave, but if you're treated badly, you will die. It's just very Klingon to me. Moving on, moving on. One of the things I like about Star Trek VI is the same thing I like about Star Trek II and Star Trek IV. It has the ensemble cast feel. Basically, every character has a decent amount of screen time and a decent amount of lines. And a lot of scenes, the, the dialogue, rather than having one person talking to another, which they could have done, they have him talk to her, talk to her, and they're discussing things in a group on the bridge most often. And the dialogue bounces around naturally and, and seamlessly. It, it, there's a great deal of chemistry between the cast, and it works really well. Um, so I really like the fact that they have, you know, the Uhura scene and the Chekhov scene, and then they've got this scene with Valeris, and they've got this scene with Spock, and this scene with Scotty, etc. They did a really good job of that. Um, 
Spock has a line in this movie, which is, uh, an ancestor of mine once maintained that if you eliminate the improbable, or if you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. This is actually a quote from Sherlock Holmes, which is a double joke. Uh, for those of you not aware, Nicholas Meyer actually did a few episodes of Sherlock Holmes, which is the first joke. The second joke is that Nick, uh, Spock is apparently a descendant of, uh, of Sherlock Holmes on his mother's side, of course. So, interesting thought here. The Klingons and the Romulans and the Federation were all involved in this plot, but the Romulan involvement in this plot is non-existent. That's actually interesting to me. Now, it makes sense, especially from the creative perspective. The idea was that these two powers had people within them, you know, that, that were unwilling to go to peace because of the undiscovered country, which, again, I'll talk about last. But I mention this because the Romulans are chess masters. They've always been presented like this. This is especially true in Season 3 of TNG, which I'll be talking about eventually, hopefully, and in the Season 4 of Enterprise. It's pretty much the undercurring arc of all of Season 4 of Enterprise, actually. The Romulans are playing chess by positioning everyone and using their significant power and technological pro uh, progress in order to make sure everyone else is too weak to, to oppose them. It makes sense that... I, I like the fact that they added that the Romulan ambassador was in on this thing, because otherwise... Why would the Romulans stay out of this? It makes no sense. It makes perfect sense that they would try to keep the Klingons of the Federation balanced against each other. They would have no doubt very be very antagonistic towards the idea of the two powers joining forces, right? One little tidbit to keep in the back of your mind. How did the Klingons come up with a bird of prey that can fire while cloaked? You can see how why I'm tying this into the Romulans here, that maybe the two combined were able to pull off this kind of amazing feat that otherwise was impossible, and indeed will never be pulled off from this point until the Mary Sue ship in Nemesis, which doesn't even count. So this is effectively a one-off thing. I'll talk more about that in a little bit. Um, so a few early signs of Martia's nature not being what she appears... First of all, she's very nice to Kirk and McCoy the moment she sees them, even though there's basically no reason to do so, and especially since they both have a, war uh, a bounty on their heads already. Second reason, there's a much stronger, much more dangerous-looking alien that she orders away as if he's nothing but a minion of hers, and he looks he takes her order without, without even that much hesitation. I mention this because it's interesting that Kirk actually picks up on this. Again, that's Kirk showing his intellect there, and he d demonstrates this later on. Um, but he plays along with it because, again, that's Kirk. I have been offered a, you know, someone is trying to kill me, but I can use that to my own advantage. Very much a thinking-on-his-feet kind of a guy, right? So, Spock and Scott's scene is, uh, Scotty's scene is awesome. Pay attention to what Spock says. At no point in time does Spock lie. Scotty comes in and says, Captain, and Spock says, uh, how is the status in the engines? And Scotty says, there's nothing wrong with the bloody thing. And then Spock says, if we go back, everything's going to hell. He says it very specifically. And then Scotty says, oh, it could take weeks to repair it. And Spock says, thank you. Inform and then he turns to Uhura and says, inform Starfleet, it will take us weeks to deal with this. I love that because it's so wonderfully sliding under the line of a lie. It's, it's a completely a deception. But at no point in time does Spock actually lie on the matter because he has inf been informed by his chief engineer that there, it's going to take them weeks. Now, you could argue that this is a technically. It isn't, though, because a technically is a negative thing. This is a positive thing. Moving on. I do also like the line. Keep this in the back of your mind. 
she uh, Valeris turns to him and says, "A lie," you know, with that confusion, and he says, "An error." <laughs> so Kirk's fight is very much his style. He, Kirk is not actually that much smarter than most some people, and he's not that much stronger than most people. But he uses the combination of what he has available to him in his skill in order to win most battles. At least that's how I've always perceived it, especially in Star Trek II. And here in this in this battle, and I just mentioned that because it's actually kind of a very Batman thing in its own way. He's not that good; he's just good at what he has. You know, he, he he's good he's good at knowing his own limits and what he can do. Kirk and McCoy have a wonderfully human exchange, as McCoy is cantankerous and has no idea how to deal with what's going on, and Kirk is just pouring his guts out to him. Kirk has probably been thinking about this ever since he saw Gorgon die, but this is the first time he's been able to talk about it to the only person, well, one of the only people he really trusts, McCoy. He didn't even realize how prejudiced he was. That's interesting, because that's how real prejudice works. You don't realize you're really prejudiced when you really are. You just think that's just the way things are. This will come up later, actually, with Valeris. This is logical. This is how things are. It's not until you're confronted with it or shown how wrong you are that it's like, oh my god, I was thinking that, wasn't I? Kirk realizes the truth of the undiscovered country in this scene. It's really fascinating the way it works. And then McCoy says, what is it with you? That was a nice little touch. I didn't actually get that when I was younger, to be honest with you. The joke there is that Kirk always gets it on with the ladies because he's such a ladies' man. And so McCoy just is like, what is it with you? <laughs> Christian Slater shows up for a brief cameo in this film. You may not even be aware of this. He shows up as a lieutenant or ensign or whatever uh, on the Excelsior. His mother was actually involved in the production of this film and basically begged to get him that line instead of Yeoman Rand, or, excuse me, Lieutenant Rand at this point in time. Um, I just felt like sharing the anecdote, as I always do. So Sulu had a cut line, which, damned it, it's a great line. It's actually one of my favorite lines in Star Trek overall. I always hoped that if I ever had to choose between betraying my country or betraying my friend, I'd have the courage to betray my country. This is Sulu in a nutshell, and tying in again with that overall theme of loyalty that is something that's been present basically ever since Star Trek 1, but ultimately is also adamantly shown in three in Star Trek 3, which is the last movie Sulu really had a lot of stuff to do in. Remember, he was so loyal, he was willing to torpedo his career in, in a second, without hesitation, in order to save his friend. And now he's the captain of what is probably going to become the new flagship of, of Starfleet, of the brand new Excelsior, which just completed its first cruise and is amazing, and he's got an aspiring, amazing career ahead of him, and he's willing to toss it out the window because, damn it, I have the courage to betray my country. It is wonderfully Sulu, and in my opinion speaks to the heart of what really makes Starfleet great. A much later thing would actually have Sulu explain this to Tuvok, who canonically was actually on the ship at this point in time, in the episode, uh... Flashback, in Voyager. A lot more happens on the bridge of a starship than rules and regulations. And I forget the whole speech. He gives a great speech about it. But the idea is that Starfleet's rules and regulations exist for a reason, definitely. Any military organization, or any organization really, needs those kind of things to function. But if it loses the heart at the core of that, if people start treating other people as digits or numbers or objects rather than people, well, then you're the Borg, aren't you? So I really like the fact that Sulu shows that humanity, and I really love the fact that his crew, who at this point has only been his crew for three years, shows loyalty to him by agreeing to this without hesitation, with the exception of Tuvok, of course. Great energy in the search scenes. 
and the music again. Oh, I love the music of this movie so much. Um, there's a mon- mon- it's wonderful that you could take a scene that's literally just we're searching the ship, which if you think about it is going to be one of those boring, mundane tasks ever, especially on a ship the size of the Enterprise A. But the energy of the action, and again, this is Meyer's style, lots of movement, lots of people, lots of things, lots of details, and high-tension music going to keep the pace going and to keep the tension high for the search scenes. So uh, I just want to give huge props to the special effects on Martia. They did a really, really, really good job. They actually did some brand new stuff, M did, uh, with Martia's uh, metamorphing, especially when she morphs into the child on screen and then morphs into uh, Kirk on screen. They did some really great stuff with that. I just wanted to praise that. The location shots they did for Rurapente, oh my god, those are gorgeous. And, and wonderful music playing during it, too. Oh, I love this film. Enterprise was actively scanning Rurapente. That actually makes sense when you think about it. The Enterprise knows where Kirk and McCoy are. The Enterprise knows that they have the Viridian patch on. The Enterprise knows that Kirk is probably trying to get out of that field. So all they need to do is keep their scanners focused on that one location. We know scanners can work quite a distance, but you can't just scan. This has been well established. You can't just scan all of space in a huge distance. It doesn't work that way. But they know exactly where they're scanning and exactly what they're looking for. So I've heard some people nitpick this, but for me it actually makes perfect sense that they would literally be scanning Rurapente and then detect almost immediately when Kirk and McCoy start leaving the magnetic shield because they would start picking up the signal. And then there's the Klingon outpost. Now, two things about this. Number one, Nichelle Nichols almost refused to do this scene. I actually agree with her, even though I like this scene, because I would have felt like this was done for a little bit of comic relief, basically. Um, I would have liked it better, though, if we saw the Uhura that we see in 2009's Abrams film. I know that sounds weird, but the idea of a Uhura who is so fluent in Klingon that she can just pick up on it by ear and speak it on command, I would have liked that a lot. And it really would have shown the confidence that I've always felt Uhura embodies, rather than her barely being able to talk through a dictionary. However, regardless of that, I love this scene because it again shows one of the problems with the Klingon Empire. This is an outpost defending an area by the neutral zone close to their prison planet, which, by the way, also happens to be one of their major dilithium mines, like in the whole empire. It's manned by two guys and has a broken scanner which can only detect a ship. Can't tell you that it's a Federation ship. Can't tell you it's a cruiser. It's just detecting a ship. We have in these two guys people who are obviously accustomed to smugglers. The, the implication, in the, this is in the novelization as well, but I've always had the implication, even before I read the book, that these two people assume the Enterprise is just smugglers. And smuggling is so commonplace and normal that they're just like, okay, go ahead. I'll probably get a kickback about it eventually. And I'm okay with that. It really speaks to how far the Klingon Empire has descended at this point in time. That they are so negligent in, in their infrastructure and their discipline amongst the rank and file that this kind of thing can happen. I just felt like sharing that because I feel like that was done on purpose as well. So they actually add a line that Mart- it's very difficult for Martia to shapeshift. That's actually kind of critically important because it explains why she doesn't shift back instead of staying as Kirk in, in the final scene. Um... So I love the timing on Kirk and McCoy's rescue because this is so wonderful. Kirk is wonderfully genre-savvy. He knows he can goad this Klingon into telling him as much as he wants because the Klingon has him where he wants him. Kirk is helpless, and yet Kirk also knows he has an ace up his sleeve. He, he believes, he has faith that the Enterprise is coming for him, and he's right, 
but he has faith in that. So he's like, tell me everything, you know, just trying to draw it out. So that's two things. Number one, he wanted information. Number two, he wanted to give Spock more time to rescue him. And then Spock rescues him before he could learn anything. I love that scene. So, okay, I get why they stumble on the assassins in the corridor. I really do. For the construction of the movie, to do otherwise would have slowed the pace of the film down. At this point, the pace of the film is much higher energy than it has been throughout the whole. There's very few pause points. In fact, there's actually only two from this point on, counting the ending. Um, so I get why they'd literally just stumble across the bodies of the assassins. But I have to admit, what the hell? <laughs> that doesn't actually make a lot of sense in terms of construction of the setting. I also really like how pieces start to come together at this point in time. It's usually, you can tell Meyer has, has written some Sherlock stuff because he constructs this story so that it, you start off with the, the, the just jigsaw and by the end of the movie it's all come together. Several little tidbits, some of which were literally thrown away as, as a casual gag earlier on, are suddenly relevant. For example, why not just disintegrate them? As Chekhov himself points out and as was demonstrated to him earlier, it would set off the alarm. They couldn't do that. And you can't eject them into space, someone would detect that. You can't teleport them off. You see the problem here. It's also funny because hiding the bodies would have also been a problem, if you think about it. And yet, at the same time, it, there's no real downside to killing them. Because there's no evidence. Once they're dead, that's the end of the investigation. If not for the fact that Kirk had, had been thinking about this all this time, and had already suspected Valeris, and pulled Spock aside... They probably wouldn't have figured out how to deal with this situation. And then there's that wonderful scene. You know, they're going to, we need a court reporter. We're going to take statements from Yeoman, Bert, and Samno. That goes across the entire ship. And a lot of random extras share glances. It's very meaningful because the idea is who's the traitor? Who killed those men? Those were two Starfleet officers. Try to think about this from in perspective. Those are Starfleet officers that another Starfleet officer has murdered. That's terrible and horrible. Who could even think about doing such a thing? And forgive me for buying into the idealism for a second, but that's the kind of thing that should be the ultra-rare occurrence, if ever. You know what I mean? And so they're all looking at each other and glancing around in just nervousness and worry because someone did that. Is it you? Is it them? And everyone's thinking that. And it's a wonderful subtlety because that is the entire point of the Cold War. I don't trust you. It's a wonderfully subtle uh, explanation. It's, 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 it's like the whole, it's a, it's a microcosm of the entire Cold War, of the entire situation this entire movie is about. All these people going about their daily business, looking at each other with sudden mistrust and, and fear in their eyes. And yet none of them are at fault and none of them have any reason to be afraid of each other. Isn't that wonderful? And then we have the scene where Valeris goes into the sick bay. Again, picture if this had been Savic. Just picture it. Picture Christy Alley right there, holding the, holding the phaser. Nimoy delivers one of his best performances ever, in my opinion, in this one scene, where he, con he displays just how constrained and disciplined he is by the sheer amount of restrained anger that he demonstrates. The raw fury roiling under the surface there. He does it beautifully. Oh, that's just an amazing scene. And a perfect trap, really, if you think about it. But then we go to the bridge scene, and we have the final callback to Savik. 
This line was absolutely written for Savick. I'm sorry, there's no denying this. Remember all the way back in Star Trek II, she asked him about a lie. You know, remember? With regards to the coded message thing? And that has come up more than once since then. And, and came up here in Star Trek VI. So we get to this final thing, and he and she lies. And Spock, with a wounded voice, says, A lie? And she says, A choice. Showing that she has effectively completed her character arc and and has now have believed that she has reached the logical and correct conclusion at the end of all that she has gone through. Then there's the mind meld scene. First of all, I can't deny that it's a little bit of an uncomfortable scene to watch, but it's not because she's female. If Savik was male, it would still be just as uncomfortable. I just want to make that clear. Okay. What is happening is he is, well, it's up to interpretation. The novel goes out of its way to make it clear that he is not invading her mind. What he does is opens his mind to her, and then she, in reaction to this, opens her mind to him. In the movie, it's a lot more up to debate. And based on the way she reacts, it's more likely he was actually invading her mind. So again, male or female doesn't matter. That is kind of uncomfortable to watch. But the thing I love about it is when Spock is done, he looks devastated, grieved. His voice is broken. She does not know. Nimoy, again, nails that. And then, of course, Sulu, without a moment's hesitation, uh, betrays the entire Federation to save his friend. And now, in fairness, he actually is doing it to save the Federation as well, so shrug. But, um... Then Spock and Kirk have a great scene. This is one of those two quiet scenes I mentioned, where they reflect, and we finally see the final journey between Spock and Kirk and why the two have always complemented each other so brilliantly all the way since the original series. This scene is all about those two characters and is really just a cap to the wonderful friendship, charismatic connection, the chemistry between the two that they have had all the way since the original series. Kirk is the energetic you know, charge ahead, think on his feet, emotion-driven Spock is the logical, cautious, planning uh, quietly and patiently, sifting through the sand. And the two people have always complemented each other brilliantly. And I love it because that scene also shows how, despite being two very different men, they are ultimately the same because they are both flawed. Spock was blinded by his faith in Savik, and I'm just going to say that because it's so much more obvious from that perspective. Why wouldn't he be blinded by Savik? His pupil, his, the person he took care of, the person he fought and, and faced death alongside more than once. Even if it is Valeris, the fact remains, he was blinded by his, by his I, prejudice, his own form of prejudging. He failed. He never. It's it's implicated that Spock at no point in time thought Valeris might be the traitor until Kirk brought it up. Which brings me to Kirk's flaw, that he was so blinded by his own prejudice, his own hatred, his own pain, that at no point in time did he really understand what was going on on the grander scale of things. That this was history being made right here. I love this scene. And it leads me to one little thing, now that I'm talking about history. Camp Kittimer. 
If we look at Star Trek as an overall thing, all of Star Trek, there are certain individual points at which all of Star Trek changes. It's usually from an in-character perspective, but in some cases it's from an out-of-character perspective. Wolf 359 is one of those points in which all of Star Trek changed, in-character and out. Another of them is Camp Kittimer. Camp Kittimer is where the wall came down in space. Camp Kittimer is the spot at which the Klingons and the Romulans and the Federation got together for basically the first time and said, let's make this work, and succeeded. This is the beginning of the Winds of Change era in-universe, the one that already had happened in the 90s, out-of-universe, done deliberately to reflect that this is... I'm tearing up a bit. <laughs> I was alive when this happened. <laughs> this is a new way of life now. A better way of life, as most would call it, for those who lived during those dark times. Things are different now. Scary. Unusual. They have their own problems. There are new things that will change the way we function in life, and there will be new threats and new difficulties and new unknown terrors. But that itself is the undiscovered country. I, I, I wanted to talk about this dead last, but, I mean, this is a beautiful segue, so let's just go into this. From... I've studied Shakespeare a lot, so forgive me for saying this. From whose, from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly off to those we know not of. Thus, conscience does make cowards of us all, and the native hue of resolution is sickled, or sick, bleh, sicklied, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I scribbled this down to her. I'm not sure what word that is. Sickened over with the pale cut, uh, pale cast of thought and enterprises of great pith and moment. With this regard, their currents turn awry and lose the name of action. The undiscovered country. In other words, the total unknown. The thing we know nothing of. The most, in my opinion speaking of someone who knows only a little bit about human psychology and, 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 psych and the way the mind works, the unknown is the greatest fear, in my opinion, that the human race has ever faced, commonly as, as, a, as a species and as individuals, because it's the unknown, because we don't know how to react to the unknown, because we don't know how to deal with the unknown, because we don't know how bad it will be. It might be good. It might be bad. It might be different. It might be worse. The Undiscovered Country explains everything about this movie. Valeris stared at this situation and said, Logically, the Klingons cannot be trusted. Why? Well, because they conspired to kill their own, their own, their own chancellor. And that is logical. If you're prejudiced, remember, you don't realize you're prejudiced if you really are. Not until you're faced with it, full front. In her perspective, the fact that a few Klingons were untrustworthy therefore made it logical that Klingons were untrustworthy. Yes, I know in the original script uh, idea and in the novelization, Valeris's family and, and people were actually killed in a Klingon attack. I get that. The point remains. And Admiral Cartwright, someone who stared at this new situation and saw all the horrors that could... Remember he mentioned the, the alien trash of the galaxy. Now, I know immigration sounds like a small issue on a galactic scale and, and, and with combined with all the other things that Star Trek has faced. But think about what that would have really meant. Think about how much that would have changed the Federation or ruined it. 
Think about what I mentioned earlier with regards to that scene in, in, in the dining hall and all the people who are terrified of, of cultural assimilation, the end of our way of living, the idea that they would literally be forced to lose all that they had and, just in, 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 and go into this complete unknown. Chang, someone who has lived his entire life as a warrior, as a, as, a, as a samurai, as I've said before, having to live in an era of peace without even knowing what that means, without even knowing what that's like. Everyone involved was so terrified of the undiscovered country, including Kirk, that they couldn't face it. It's an irony because Kirk himself, would he would have never joined in the conspiracy, but he would have considered it. And that is, again, bringing back to the biggest theme of this entire piece, flaws and overcoming them, or how we deal, how we deal with those flaws, how all these people dealt with the flaws in their psyches or didn't deal with them. Some people coped their lives to fit their flaws. Spock and Kirk tried to overcome their flaws, to work better, to, to, to do better. Valeris embraced her flaw and adjusted her worldview to accommodate it. God, I love this movie. So, I've talked many times before in Star Trek, uh, let's see, in Star Trek 2, 3, uh, and 5, there's been a need to balance the much stronger Enterprise to make it a fair fight against a much weaker ship. In my opinion, this is one of the best ways they've ever done that. It's a Burrell, bird of prey, right? Weak little ship, cannot possibly match the Enterprise. It can fire while cloaked. I love that. I love that because... And there's a wonderful little subtlety to it. You notice it never actually uses disruptors, which could have actually weakened Enterprise's shield much quicker and easier. Two reasons for that. Uh, one is the obvious, because Chang was basically toying with Kirk. He had time to. But the second reason... I shouldn't say toying. It's actually a respect thing, but I digress. Um, the second reason is that... I've always believed that disruptors use more energy than torpedoes. So therefore, this experimental device, which barely works... And again, is not a perfect device, I might add. It's not a perfect cloak. Um, would only work with torpedoes, a literal launching of a torpedo, and then the torpedo would take over the job of aiming and, and otherwise impacting, whereas the disruptors would take about too much energy. You see where I'm going with this, right? I mentioned that respect thing, though. Let me cover that really quickly. It would have been very easy for Chang to just open fire and barrage the Enterprise in key critical areas with torpedoes and then destroy the Enterprise, but he doesn't. This is why I say it's respect, not just toying. I mean, he is toying. There's no denying that. But it's respect that drives his action. First thing he does is he contacts Enterprise. First thing he does. He wants Kirk to know we are about to fight. He bows his head in respect. You see how this works? And then he starts opening fire, and he allows Kirk a chance to fight back. Again, toying, but also ensuring that his opponent isn't just debilitated that his opponent isn't just going to fall down and surrender, but rather that his opponent has a chance to do something in order to try and withstand it, right? I like that. Now, this is actually probably one of my favorite space battles ever. It's right up there with the Battle of Endor, in my opinion. It's, and it's wonderful because it's like half, you know, typical spaceship, half battleship style file, uh, fight, and half submarine fight. You've got one ship who's completely invisible, just battering the crap out of you, and the other ship who's just trying to survive against the onslaught. 
and the tension and the scene cutting. One of the things I like about Battle of Endor was it wasn't just about the Battle of Endor. I talked about this in my Return of the Jedi review. It would cut from the battle on, in space to the battle on the ground to the amazing character dynamic between the three characters. And they do the same type of thing here. It cuts between the conference and then the ship and then Chang and it bounces between these three until the Excelsior shows up and then it bounces between all four of them. Amazing editing and directorial style. Truly. We even get tiny tidbits of flavor in setting in the little tidbits we hear from the Chancellor, or excuse me, the, the, the Federation President who's talking uh, during the the, 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 the Kinema Accords, during the during the meeting thing. God, my vocabulary is gone today. Maybe I should take a break. Um, I love it. I love the constant shifts. And I love Sulu's line, fly her apart then, when he's getting the Excelsior there. And I love that because I believe firmly in my mind that he meant that. If the Excelsior were to disintegrate in warp flight, then so be it. Because it's better doing that than not even trying. That I firmly believe Sulu actually meant what he said. And I love that line for it. And it is very Sulu. God, it would have been great if we'd gotten an Excelsior series back then. Now there's one flaw in this entire film, and it's right here. William Shatner. <laughs> I, I defend the man, but I have to be honest. William Shatner insisted nobody has to come to Kirk's rescue, which is dumb. And I'm just going to say it that way. It's dumb, especially since... Kirk's strength has always been in his crew, which, you know, involves people coming to his rescue. And in fact, that just happened a few minutes prior to this in the movie. So, even though they'd already done the directorial work of establishing that the Excelsior had been scanning for gaseous anomalies, and then done all of the effort of getting the Excelsior to the battle, it is the Enterprise who, out of nowhere, has been scanning gaseous anomalies, anomalies and therefore builds the torpedo to find the ship. In my opinion, if I could just rewrite this one scene to change it so that instead of that, it's the Excelsior making the torpedo to shoot the Burrell and then change it. That would, that would be flawless. It would, it would be a flawless movie. I would love the hell out of this movie for that, for that one change. Um, one other nice little, uh, little touch here. The torpedo, the final torpedo... Okay, the, the... I don't remember the name of the ship. They actually named the ship in the book, the, the bird. Anyways, the bird... Uh, fires, you know, is battering the crap out of the Enterprise and then finally gets through their shields to the point where it can actually do real damage to their hull and then shoots a torpedo right up through their saucer section. I love the, the, the little touch of it because the place they destroy is the dining room, the mess hall, where they had had dinner before. The symbolism on display there is obvious. I don't feel the need to mention it. I just feel like pointing it out because it's wonderful symbolism. And then... Uh, one other little tote, the evacuation and repair of Kronos. I mention this because this is interesting. It's it's a wonderful setting world building that they do in the background here. And it's only there if you're paying attention, because if you're watching this movie for the first time, you're probably paying attention to the battle and not the discussion of how they're going to evacuate Kronos, repair the ionosphere, terraform the planet so it's habitable again, and then remove the planet back, people back on. I mean, that kind of thing would take years, decades even. It's interesting because we know this process has succeeded and been done by the time TNG comes around. I only mention that because it's a nice little bit of, of world building in the background. And also indicative of why it is the Klingons were so afraid of this. Literally evacuating their planet and probably going to some Federation-controlled uh, facility to have the foods and, and, and otherwise resources to, to hold that kind of people for a long period of time. We're talking several you know, years, if not decades, at that point. But anyways... Um, 
And I mentioned Renee Abergenois' scene, which was excluded. And then there's the wonderful thing where Scotty actually is the guy who ends up shooting the Klingon. And, you know, all this wonderful stuff happens. Cartwright, Cartwright's expression, arrest yourself. Great scene, great scene. And Kirk himself does the one and only nod to the undiscovered country that's actually in, in the film. And he says, some people think the future uh, means the end of history. Well, we're not out of history yet. And then I like the fact, just a tiny little note, that Scotty has his own admiration for the Excelsior because it speaks to Scotty's mindset. Because it's not just the ship. It's the ship. And I know that sounds weird, but with Sulu at the helm, okay, that's a good ship. With Styles from back in Star Trek Three, what a bucket of bolts. So. Kirk's final command in this really caps off why this truly is the the finale, the end of, of original Star Trek. In a, in a good way, a great ending. He actually speaks, in hindsight, I don't think I've ever caught on to this, he actually speaks of the crew of TNG as he's talking about, you know, the, their future generations, we will aspire to, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, and again, keep in mind, TNG was going strong at this point in time. But he gives one command, and I mention this because I've heard some people have never really gotten this. Second star to the right, and straight on till morning. The reference is obvious, but the point is not, I've noticed. Not, not a lot of people I've seen have got this, so let me give my interpretation of it. Spock earlier had commented on how he and Kirk had gotten so old, so mired in their ways, that they couldn't actually be of use anymore. They could no longer do what both Spock and Kirk have always wanted to do. I've talked about this all the way since Star Trek I. They've wanted to do good, to help, to make a difference. Kirk's command shows that no matter what happens, they will still be able to make that difference, still be able to help, contribute, add, to do good. And it speaks to Star Trek as a whole. Because I'm tearing up. Because no matter how many years pass, Star Trek's still there. We can still go back and rewatch the original series in Star Trek's one through six, even five. And they're still there. They're flawed. They're flawed just like all the people in this movie. Remember, that's that strongest theme. These movies, these shows, the animated series, the novels, Star Trek as a whole is very flawed. But we love it anyways. Because it's flawed. Because it's human. And we can always go back, no matter how many years pass in real life, and still enjoy those wonderful classics. <laughs> Forgive me, I didn't actually think I'd tear up at this one. I love this movie. Hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you next week, guys.